Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Ms. Aida, author of Hoodoo Magic and Cleansing, Protection Magic, also Damien Keller, Binaural Production Engineer, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you're interested in becoming a contributor to the show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a bunch of information there. And now, without further ado, my guest for tonight is Frank Joseph. He has written... he. A bunch of books on Atlantis. I think it might be safe to say he's the leading expert on Atlantis. And um, he's been on the show before. Actually, probably the most commented show I've ever done. <laughs> People loved it. And uh, thanks for coming back on. Well, thank you, Gary, for having me. And it's uh, always a pleasure. Glad to be back. Yeah, this is great. So I want to just focus on Atlantis, this, this interview. So I think maybe the best place to start is from the beginning. Um, when did you start researching Atlantis? I started researching it um, about, let's see, 1980. So that makes it uh, quite, a, quite a few years ago, more than 40 years ago. And the reason why was because uh, I felt that my education uh, was unable to give me a real sense of where civilization got started and how it got started. Um, and so uh, I began looking to alternative uh, points of view. And uh, eventually I could not help but uh, read Plato's account, which is called uh, the Critias. It's named after his uncle, Uncle Critias, <laughs> and another uncle, Timaeus, Uncle Timaeus. And uh, these two dialogues of Plato describe... Uh, Atlantis as the uh, the origin point for human civilization, and I think that that is really why Atlantis is important. It's the place where human beings made the transition from savagery to civilization. That before Atlantis, there were societies that were certainly not uh, low cultures. Some of them pretty high cultures. They did some great things. But they were not what we know today as civilized societies. And that first step was taken on this island in the Atlantic Ocean, I believe, uh, about 6,000 years ago. And so what led me to, the, to uh, investigating Atlantis was, first of all, my deficient um, education. And then the question is, well, where, where did civilization really begin and how? And so I began uh, traveling. I didn't come to any instant conclusions, believe me. Mm -hmm. I did uh, some world traveling. I asked a lot of questions. I talked to a great many investigators, professional and alternative. And uh, I came to to the conclusion that Atlantis was probably a real place and was the birthplace of civilization, but only after years of uh, trying to uh, put the pieces of the puzzle together. Wow. So is Plato's account the only account of Atlantis, or are there other legends and other myths from other cultures that also point to Atlantis? 
Well, of course, uh, we can look at the myths and legends of other peoples, and there appear to be Atlantis-like stories that have been told over time. That's a matter of interpretation. Some of those stories sound very much like Plato's account, and even the names are similar. So one can conclude that this particular myth or that one is probably referring to Atlantis. But as far as historical accounts, Plato's was not the first. It is just the most complete of all of the accounts of Atlantis to survive the ancient world. Uh, He wrote the Atlantis account in these two dialogues, uh, 360 B.C. So you would think that this is the, the first full account, but it wasn't. It's just the first one that is more or less complete. It is mostly complete, uh, these two dialogues, the Timaeus and the Critias. We do know of other references, direct references to Atlantis uh, that predate his work. Now, that's important that these others exist, even though they don't have much information. They're just scraps. Because when the ancient world fell, almost all, the vast body of literature from the ancient world was lost. It was a terrific disaster for mankind when Rome fell, when the Greco-Roman world collapsed uh, in the uh, mid-5th century. Almost every, all the knowledge of that period, of, of those thousands of years of the ancient world, was incinerated, gone. And so we only have these small fragments left. Plato's other account, um, the Critias, ends abruptly. We don't have the end of it. All we have is where he describes that the destruction of Atlantis is about to begin, and then it breaks off. So that part is lost. That part is gone, even in his complete. So Plato's is valuable primarily because it's the most complete of all the Atlantis accounts, but it's by no means the only one. There are others. Where can so many others be found? Um, in, well, they can be found mentioned in, in my book. I have this called Before Atlantis, and I have the source materials listed. There are uh, various papyri in Egypt, some written by his fellow Greeks or Greeks before him. Um, it's important because uh, some of his critics say, well, he just invented the whole story of Atlantis. Yeah. It was just made out of whole fiction. But as we see now, um, there are these other references uh, to Atlantis. There, they're not important in the sense that they give us much information because you'll only have a few words. You'd be lucky if you get more than a sentence or two because the manuscript, um, the original manuscripts are gone. One of the great catastrophes of the ancient world was when the library of Alexandria was burned, was destroyed by early religious zealots, early Christians who believed that um, all of the knowledge of the ancient world was demonic. Anything that was before Christ was considered by these religious zealots as um, part and parcel of Satan. And so uh, the great library of Alexandria was destroyed, mostly destroyed. And then the little bit that still survived after that arson took place, when uh, Alexandria was occupied by uh, the forces of Islam, uh, they uh, went ahead and 
destroyed the rest of it. So we have nothing left from the Library of Alexandria. The Library of Alexandria had over one million books, over a million volumes. And um, so it's, it's gone. And that's why it's very difficult to try to reconstruct Atlantis entirely from the uh, ancient accounts. It's a tragedy to lose all that well, ancient knowledge. Well, it's a tragedy because just think in, in terms not just of history, but all the great medical records, all the great medical knowledge that was accumulated at that time was gone. And what happened after that? We had the Dark Ages, and what is the hallmark of the Dark Ages? Plague, Plague. and disease. The European population dwindled down to a fraction of what it was because people were dying from these diseases that had been, if not cured, to a large extent treated. And it's interesting that in this other book, that I, the most recent book that I wrote, it's called uh, Ancient High Tech, in which some of these old references are being found from the ancient world. And the, 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 the degree of medical sophistication that was achieved by the time of Rome is really outstanding. And in some degree, the medical advancements made by the Egyptians and the Romans goes beyond even what we have today. Just amazing things that are being found out. And, um, now of course, all that was lost. And along with all this great medical and scientific information and geography and everything, all the rest gone, uh, were all these references to Atlantis. And we also, there's a list uh, that I compiled in one of my books, I don't know which one, uh, in which uh, I listed all of the ancient old world references to Atlantis. And uh, of those references, all we have is the title of the book. And the rest is gone. So that gives you some idea of the scope of destruction that overtook uh, civilization before us. Yeah. Well, it's important, I think, too, you know, like you mentioned, that that maybe we don't have complete stories, you know, other than what Plato has, but there are other references to, to at least verify that what he was telling was true. I would think so. And we have to also understand is, well, why did he tell us this story? He was a philosopher. So why would he stop being a philosopher and become a, a historian or a writer of fiction? It doesn't make sense. But then when you study closely what Plato was doing in this account of Atlantis, it fits perfectly with his job as a philosopher. The reason why he wrote about Atlantis was number one, everybody was familiar with it at that time. It was no big secret. As I said, these other references before him had mm -hmm. spoken about it. The reason why Plato wrote about Atlantis was the same reason that he wrote about the ideal society. He, he wanted to show that there are ideal societies that are run by people of knowledge. He believed in philosopher kings, and that's the ideal society. But he also wanted to show why do civilizations die? What destroys them? What, do they, what process do they go through? Because many civilizations had perished before Plato's time. He was aware of that. The Greeks were aware of that. And so he wrote about Atlantis because he wanted to show 
Atlantis as an example of what becomes of a society when it declines and falls. And that's why he wrote about it. So it does fit perfectly into his uh, philosophical goals. And that was one of his goals, to show how societies collapse, how even the greatest civilizations in the past. In order to make his point, he had to use a historical example that everybody recognized. And that's the reason why he chose Atlantis. Hmm. And he really can be described as describing Atlantis in wonderful detail, which he really does. And that's terrifically valuable because we know just what the place looked like, have a pretty good idea of its size and so forth, and uh, what was going on there, what, what, uh, how this society arose. But that what Plato stresses is why the society declined. And that's a, the kind of a harrowing thing because you can find parallels between what Plato described as a society in freefall for Atlantis with what's happening in our Western civilization today. Interesting. And um, that's why it's valuable. So how did Atlantis become so high-tech and civilized while the rest of the well, world was still sort of, you know, hunter-gatherers? Well, not really. Um, the rest of the world were not really hunter-gatherers. If I understand the, the process correctly, and I, I talk about this in um, my book Before Atlantis, which deals specifically with this very early time that you mentioned, from what we can understand, and this is is really quite uh, well documented, Europe was going through what is known as the Neolithic period or the New Stone Age. Now that sounds like a real primitive uh, yeah. time, but it really wasn't because it was the birth of agriculture and you had places like Gobekli Tepe and Turkey. Uh, you had the societies like those that created the cave paintings in France beautiful works of art that really have not even been paralleled today. So there was a terrific cultural birth about 4,000 B.C. About that time, 4,000 B.C., there was this fluorescence of culture, an expansion, an explosion of creativity that was just marvelous. We don't know why that took place. Perhaps the population of Europe reached a certain level and allowed for more creative people to be born into the world? Who knows? We don't know. But we do know that by 4000 B.C., the Neolithic period had a lot to show for it, a lot of great stuff. It was like, talk about the ideal society. It really was. It was a magnificent uh, period to have lived in. Hmm. And then, only about 200 years later, about two centuries later, Europe underwent a uh, drought, a severe series of droughts. The geologists know that it existed because it left numerous geological fingerprints from that time. That's not that long ago, just 6,000 years ago. And this drought forced people to migrate. This also is known. This is not speculation. We do know that the population centers before 4,000 before 4, or 3,800 B.C., something like that, the population centers uh, spread out 
and people moved to places like uh, valleys, uh, close to rivers, uh, seashores, lakes, and so on, because of the dryness that was going on. Their livestock was having a hard time dying out and so forth. So this, it was good in the sense that this culture that had been exploding in Europe now moved further and further away from these European centers. And uh, one of the great things that arose at this time was seamanship. We know for a fact that our ancestors at this time were sailing great distances. For example, um, the island of Crete uh, was settled at this time. And you couldn't do that unless you had uh, pretty good maritime technology. When I say Crete was settled at this time, there was a mass migration across the Mediterranean Sea mm-hmm. from mainland Greece into Crete. So this is another indication of their technological um, uh, expansiveness. It was at this time that the island, which was later referred to as Atlantis, was touched by these seafarers. The island was already inhabited by a Cro-Magnon people. Now, who were the Cro-Magnons? Well, they were human beings just like us, uh, not entirely like us. Uh, they were modern human beings, but they had various traits which have uh, been consigned to more primitive past. And, of course, they don't exist anymore. The Cro-Magnons um, died out. But they had some things which were different than us. For example, their eyes were different than ours. Uh, Our eyes are built on a conical principle, conical shape. Uh, If you look at the the corona and so forth, uh, the the design of our eyes is conical. Mm -hmm. The design of the um, Cro-Magnon eyes was rectangular. And some evolutionists feel that this was done to accommodate uh, conditions of less light. But in any case, uh, the Cro-Magnons occupied this island in the Atlantic Ocean. Well, how did they get there? They were there for a very long time. Because before the Ice Age ended, when the ice was uh, prominent during the Ice Age, it sucked up enormous quantities, unthinkable quantities of ocean water. And We know, geologists know, that there was a land bridge, an extensive land bridge that extended from what is today Morocco, the coast of Morocco, straight out into the Atlantic Ocean. And part of that land bridge still exists. Spurs of it exist as these islands that are left there, like Madeira and the Canary Islands and the Azor Islands. They're all part of this tree-like design of a land bridge that extended far out hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles, 300 and more miles out into the Atlantic Ocean. And what happened at the end of the last ice age, when the, when the glaciers began to melt and retreat, huge amounts of water, meltwater, gushed into the Atlantic Ocean. We know that at the end of the last ice age, that the water level around the world, sea level around the world, was much lower than it is today. When I was a student at Southern Illinois University back in the 1960s, my geology teacher told us that the water levels were 100 feet lower 
than they are today. That seemed pretty outstanding. That's huge. Well, that was back in the 1960s. Geologists today know that the water level at the time that the Ice Age was uh, still in existence, that sea levels were 459 feet lower than they are today. That means that this land bridge was thoroughly exposed from North Africa. You could literally walk to the Canary Islands and Madeira from Africa before the end of the last ice age. And then when the ice melted and this unimaginable amount of water was re-released into the ocean, the sea levels rose and they buried underwater this great land bridge, leaving only its higher elevations uh, above sea level. And those higher elevations are the are Madeira, uh, the Canary Islands, and the Azores, and Atlantis, what is later known as Atlantis, the island of Atlantis. Plato, by the way, never refers to Atlantis as a continent. He always uses the word nasos, which is classical Greek for island. He describes it as a large island. So in other words, if you were to go back in time to this period of time, the Neolithic period that I mentioned, when all this great culture is flourishing and seamanship is in full swing, you would have been able to see this island standing above the water, which uh, is now below the surface of the water because the this melt that I mentioned took place over the course of many, many centuries. It did not happen all at once. It, it uh, went in surges, to be sure. There were major catastrophic uh, melting periods, but for the most part, it was a gradual rise of the sea level. And if you would, that's why I think that it's important to go back and investigate these places because uh, evidence has got to be found for this land bridge. Actually, it has been. Mm -hmm. The land bridge has been found, and some wonderful things have been found on it. So, wow. to wrap this up as, as clearly as I can, you ask when did this start? The Atlanteans themselves uh, had a, a, a belief in... Um, in astrology, their lead uh, mythical character was Atlas, who was the founder of astrology. And they believed that the age of Taurus, the bull, was coincidental with the birth of Atlantis. And that's very interesting because the, the, uh, the sign of the, the age of Taurus, we know exactly when it begins, which is 38 41 B.C., that's the age of Taurus, the bull. And that period coincides very closely with this Neolithic expansion that was taking place because of all this drought so that was affecting all of Europe, in fact, most of the Northern Hemisphere. So it would appear, now I, I don't say any of this for sure, this is just the best evidence that we can put together that makes the most sense, that's all a historian can hope to do, dealing with a period before there was writing. So it would appear that in 3841, seafarers from Western Europe arrived on this island, which they later called Atlantis. 
and it was already occupied by the Cro-Magnon people who had walked across this land bridge to from North Africa, where we know the Cro-Magnons uh, resided. And they intermarried over time between Cro-Magnons and these Western Europeans to produce a new people, the Atlanteans. And uh, so the beginning of Atlantis starts with these culture bearers from Western Europe, these Neolithic or New Stone Age culture bearers in, in their ships, arriving on the shores of Atlantis. And uh, Plato does say how there is a period of uh, intermarriage that takes place. And that uh, this was this was the real beginning. This is this is what appears to be how this whole civilization began. That is the first place where civilization began because these high uh, culture bearers, who are already in possession of some pretty good cultural traits, they find their their life stimulated on Atlantis by the presence of the sea. The island itself is described by Plato as very fertile. Uh, and that makes sense because it's a volcanic island, and volcanic soil is the richest soil on Earth. Over time, it becomes the most fertile because it traps in so much moisture. And so here you have all of the ingredients for building a, a civilization of prosperity and stimulation, prosperity through the soil and stimulation by the sea. Mm -hmm. And this is where... Uh, civilization began. So once they started, <clears throat> you know, traveling by sea, did the Atlanteans start trading with other cultures? Yes, uh, there was a lot of, well, trade, I suppose, uh, was natural. Um, I don't follow the, the trades, the trade routes so much there. I don't, what I see really is what was taking place is that the Atlanteans didn't have need for trade, in, at least in their early days, because they're living in a very rich environment, rich economically, agriculturally. Um, so I don't really see them as in, in need of, of trade with, until well, something did happen after many, many years, after hundreds of years, where they did become interested in trade. Now, the Atlanteans found their new society in 3841 B.C., and they prospered there. About 3000 B.C., in other words, about 800 years later, quite a long time later, after they had become very prosperous and expansive and had colonized other islands, they arrived in North America. And when they arrived here on the shores of North America for the first time, this would be about right around the time of a little before 3000 B.C. I'm saying between 3500 and 3000 B.C. And they arrived on the shores of North Africa and they noticed that the native people uh, were covered with these beautiful um, medallions and adornments kind of gold-like, but different. Mm -hmm. And so the Atlanteans inquired, well, where, do, what is the source for these this beautiful metal? And the Native Americans took them all the way up to the upper peninsula of Michigan. This would be the upper Great Lakes area, which is the world's largest deposit still of the world's highest grade copper. 
And when the Atlanteans saw all this great copper that was available in unprecedented numbers and amounts, they began a mining operation. Now, this mining operation left its mark, which is still visible today and has been very well documented. And this is one of the great uh, pieces of evidence establishing Atlantis as a real place was this copper mining enterprise because, as I say, the mines that they made still exist. They have been properly dated. Uh, some, even some of their machinery still exists. Machinery in the sense not that they were uh, like our industrial machines, but machines nonetheless. Uh, and evidence of very high technology that they left behind. For example, uh, the ancient miners and I believe that they were Atlanteans, had the ability to determine the precise position of all of the copper deposits. Now, some copper you can tell because it arch where it is because it arches out of the ground on the surface of the earth, but most of it you can't see. You have to know how did they find out where those deposits were directly, and they drilled down to those deposits. The other thing is, is how on earth did they free the copper from the rock because uh, there's the, the kind of technology for that didn't really exist until the 18th century as far as we know. Mm -hmm. So the Atlanteans having found all this magnificent copper began now to trade it with all of the peoples of Europe and the Near East and that began the Chalcolithic Age or the Copper Age because before that time you were using stone tools, which are brittle. They only have so much, uh, even granite has the ability to, cannot be worked finely. But with copper, you can use, make, make fine weapons with it, light, sharp weapons, tools, all kinds of things. Then the Atlanteans found the big trick. This really changed their whole society more than anything else. They found that if they have this copper, only this type of copper, by the way, high-grade copper, which is primarily from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and you combine that, you smelt it with zinc and tin, you create a far superior metal, bronze. Hmm. And that was the beginning of the Bronze Age. Now, the, the Atlanteans, who were monopolists in this trade because they alone had access to all this terrific copper, became the great purveyors and merchants, uh, entrepreneurs of the entire Western world. And they became fabulously wealthy because all these other kingdoms depended for bronze to, in order to have superior weapons. Because if you were confronting your enemy who had bronze weapons and you did not, you would lose, no matter if you know, how good your copper shields were, because the bronze would cut right through it and it had to be high-quality bronze. So Plato does mention um, uh, quite a bit of this, as a matter of fact. He refers to the Atlantean monopoly as, with a Greek word, actually it's a Latin word. Uh, the Latin word is orichalcum. In Greek it's orichalcos, which means literally high-grade copper. And the Atlanteans had this access to this terrific copper source and this is, figures into Plato's discussion because something happened to the Atlantean psychology when, when they became 
metalsmiths. Before then, they were primarily interested in spirituality, high culture. Um, sure, they had their agriculture and their economy and all that too, but they were. he describes them as a very high-minded people. But when they became obsessed with wealth and profit, uh, they put aside their spiritual ideas for the most part, and uh, they underwent um, a psychological transformation for the worse. And this is why he says Atlantis is a good example of what was happening in Plato's own time, in Greece, and in all societies. All societies begin with idealism. And they, the pioneers of a society have to fight against terrific odds, uh, they have to know what frugality is. They have to know what self-sacrifice is. They have to know what mutual cooperation is. And when they build a society upon those high ideals, you have uh, great cultures like Athens or Rome or Egypt, Assyria, Troy, all the rest. But then as these societies become more and more prosperous, uh, the, the shift of their interest changes from service to society and high ideals that they climb into greed and self-interest. And when that happens, you have a cascade effect and become weak. Uh, society is, loses its coherence, its resilience, its sense of cooperation, and um, becomes a victim uh, of, of its own decadence. So Plato was uh, not considered one of the greatest philosophers of all time for nothing. Uh, his, some of his ideas, many of his ideas, still apply to the condition we're in today. So Atlantis began with the arrival of these seafarers, 3841 B.C., if we go by the beginning of the age of Taurus, which the Atlanteans did, and then um, they eventually expanded uh, to throughout the Atlantic because they were great seafarers. Their society is known in, by the Greeks as a thalassocracy. A thalassocracy is a power, a military and economic power, which bases its strength on sea power. Uh, like uh, England would have been considered in its heyday as a thalassocracy because of its predominance with the Royal Navy. Um, Japan in World War II was a thalassocracy because it depended mostly on its its fleet. And so the Atlanteans also were uh, great seafarers. Their ships were uh, freighters that transported the, these copper uh, cargoes back to Atlantis, and they were protected by these massive battleships and battle cruisers that um, Plato really describes in, in some detail. And Marines uh, to uh, man the ships and storm ashore if necessary. And so the, the shift is very similar. In other words, Atlantis began as a kind of, almost as a kind of republic. Uh, she had kings in the beginning, for sure. Uh, but these kings uh, could, had, were like a congress, actually. You had one... Uh, top leader, the emperor, but he was responsible to these lower kings and their decisions, so they could override what he says. It sounds really 
like a constitutional republic mm-hmm. in a way, describing it. And um, But then when Atlantis got bigger and stronger, uh, the emperor dispensed with uh, formalities, and uh, the kings were still there, but they had to do what the emperor said. So in other words, there was this change in Atlantis from a kind of kind of like a um, republic, constitutional republic, if you, not constitutional, but a congressional republic, to an empire. And many people, like Gore Vidal, uh, have expounded many times the idea that we began as a constitutional republic or a congressional republic and transformed into a kind of an empire, world policeman. Yeah. So it's the same process that we see uh, in, in many nations. It's almost like a human trait. that we, Human beings can make, make civilizations, but they can't maintain them. They self-destruct them. Most civilizations are, virtually all civilizations are destroyed by themselves. Very few civilizations are, just, are destroyed by outside influences. Those outside influences are usually bring the coup de grace to some internal weakness that a civilization has experienced. And um, that's what, what Plato was saying. And that's why I think Atlantis is so important. It's like Shakespeare says, it holds the mirror up, uh, up to life. It maybe isn't pleasant for us to see ourselves reflected in these things, but nonetheless, they're true. So the Atlanteans went from uh, these culture bearers from Europe, these New Age, these Neolithic, New Stone Age seafarers who brought their culture to Atlantis, intermarried with the natives, which were Cro-Magnons, and succeeded very beautifully. And then as they they expanded and their population got larger, they expanded to places as far away as North America, stumbled across the copper deposits, realized that they could use this copper uh, to become a commercial enterprise, sold the copper to their clients across Europe and the Near East, then figured out how to combine zinc and tin and create a truly superior metal, bronze, hence began the Bronze Age, and then that wasn't enough because that's the that's the thing with power freaks, whether they're whether they're American or Atlantean, uh, just like uh, in the movie Troy, where the character played uh, uh, for uh, Achilles, he's asked well he, he's asked by one of the Trojans there says, uh, well what do you want? Why are you here? What do you want from us? And Achilles says, well I want what every man wants more. And that's uh, that's exactly it. Power freaks are insatiable. And so the Atlanteans became an active empire. They knew that they were the strongest, the biggest, the best. And so they undertook the uh, military conquest of Europe. They wanted to create a one-world system. That appears to be what they were. They wanted to dominate the world. They figured that they were the best and that they uh, deserved nothing less and that the world would be a far better place off. We're going to conquer everybody for their own good. And uh, they engaged in a, milita- a huge military enterprise. And the Trojan War that I mentioned, that was only one theater of it. That was part of this Atlantean enterprise. And um, it didn't go too well for them. At first it did. 
They stormed across Europe. They took uh, all of Spain. They took what they wanted of France, Italy. And they gobbled up the Mediterranean. They uh, took North Africa. In those days, uh, those were the power places. Those were the superpowers in those areas. Hmm. But uh, when they when they ran afoul of the Greeks, uh, they lost. And uh, they lost big time. And in the middle of their military defeat, they suffered a natural catastrophe from which they could not revive. And so their culture not only went under the sea, but also went into obscurity for a very long time and just just morphed into myth and legend, was no longer a history, which is probably their greatest insult. <laughs> you think this is the greatest superpower in the world of all of all time until then. And they wouldn't they weren't even remembered as real for hundreds <laughs> of years after they vanished. So if their ghosts were to come back they would be mortified to learn that they're not even given credit for any of these other cultures that were sparked by them and by their descendants. But the Atlanteans are just regarded as a myth or a legend. So that's the way it goes. It was the same with Troy. Troy was regarded as purely mythical for hundreds of years, hundreds, until it was found in the 19th century. And they know that it's real. It's the same thing with Atlantis. Atlantis has been regarded for hundreds of years as just a story. And people will continue to believe it's a story until it's found. Interesting. And it can be found. I believe that the technology is there where it can be found now. So how, I mean, when I'm, I'm thinking about like Atlanteans being here in North America mining copper, they had to have probably been interacting then with, with, you know, the native culture here. Absolutely. And they still remember that. The Menominee Indians were a people who not, well, there are people that now live in southern and middle Wisconsin. Their original homeland, so far as, as can be determined, was in Michigan. And that's their earliest known uh, homeland area right around the upper Great Lakes. They were driven out by other Native Americans uh, long afterwards. But the Menominee Indians to this day talk about somebody they call the Sea People or the Sea Men, who are these light-skinned foreigners who came across the sea in these big floating houses. This is from a people who did not have ships. They had canoes and so forth. And that the these uh, sea people, these yellow, these white-skinned uh, sea people, compelled the ancestors of the Menominee Indians to dig holes in the Mother Earth to look for her shiny bones. That's the way the myth recounts it to this day. And that the Menominee eventually rose up against these um, people that were after the copper and massacred a great deal of them and drove the rest of them away. That's their story. So that's I think, is an indication that they're talking about the, the copper miners, the ancient copper miners. This copper mining question is almost totally unknown to most Americans. They've never heard of this. It's not discussed, even though it's not speculation. It's not made up. 
it's highly well documented. It has been well documented for almost 200 years now. There are more than 5,000 known pit mines, ancient mines, in the Upper Peninsula, on the Kiwanee Peninsula of Upper Michigan, the Great Lakes area. And these mines were made suddenly. Nobody even knows who could have possibly done this. The native peoples at that time were not even interested in copper except what is known as float copper. Float copper are just small pieces of copper that are left behind by the glacier, and you can walk along the ground. You can still find them today and pick them up, mm-hmm. and you can anneal them. In other words, you hit them with a hammer, and you can knock them into certain shapes. And that's what the Native Americans did. They used them as trinkets. Nothing more than that. The amount of copper that was removed by these ancient miners is staggering from these more than, more than 5,000 pit mines. There was a, a really great uh, researcher. His name was Fred Ridholm, who devoted his life. He was a, a school teacher. He was a, a highly respected school teacher, not a, not a teacher only, but a school principal up in um, Michigan. And he became fascinated early in his life with these copper mines who made these things how big were they and they were he and others were able to define that there are more than 5,000 of these mines that were made some of these mines to give you an idea of the lost technology that made them would go more than 60 feet through solid rock straight down right on top of the copper deposit number one how did the ancient miners know exactly where that copper was at 60 feet down? And how, what kind of machine did they have that could drill a hole straight down, sometimes through granite, through Michigan granite, right on top of it? One of these machines has been found, actually several, but one, at least one has been found in almost perfect shape because at the bottom of one of these mines was found... A crude, crudely worked uh, crib work, like an elevator. Mm-hmm. So you could put a 5,000 pound, or, or uh, like about a four ton nugget of copper on top of this crib work, and with levers, it would elevate it to the, out of the mine, out of the pit of the mine. You drag it out of its, after you chopped it out of the earth, and you put it on top of this. Uh, wooden crib work, and then men with four levers in four different directions would elevate this copper piece of um, uh, nugget, they call it, weigh about four tons, right to the surface, and from there they'd drag it off and put it on a ship and take it away. Now, Native Americans, uh, they never did anything like this. Never. They were never interested in things like that although they probably were enslaved or coerced somehow to become workers there. Oh, there's been fabulous things found up there, like there was a a huge pier. <laughs> the pier was something like a quarter of a mile long. It was a harbor work. Now, for people that are using birch bark canoes, you don't need a quarter mile long uh, marine pier, and it's right in the... Um, copper mining territory off a place called Isle Royale. It's on Isle Royale especially that all this copper mining was done. Someone, uh, I know who it was, was Dr. James Shares. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin. He did a calculation, an ultra-conservative calculation, 
of all of the, the, the total amount of copper that was removed from these 5,000 mounds, uh, 5,000 pit mines, excuse me. And the copper involved would be enough to fill something like 42, I don't have the, the figures in front of me now, something like 40 or 42 train loads of copper. That's how much copper was removed. And the great mystery is it vanished. <laughs> literally, literally hundreds of thousands of tons of the world's highest grade copper were removed from the upper peninsula of Michigan and disappeared. Interestingly, coincidentally, the same time that this copper vanished, the Bronze Age erupted in Europe. Well, somebody who was extracting this copper and knew how to combine it with zinc and tin to create bronze, and if you did that, you had the nuclear fusion of your day. It'd be like a country without an atomic bomb challenging a nuclear power. Couldn't do it in those days. So people like the Egyptians and the Trojans and the Etruscans were able to pay big time for the bronze production that the Atlantean middlemen brought to them. But that, uh, that's a supposition. Mm -hmm. But what is not a supposition is that that copper was real and it really existed. And the, the crime is, the educational crime is, most Americans don't have a clue about it, never heard about it. Yeah, I mean, that completely changes the history of North America from at least the way it was taught to me in high school. Well, and the way it's taught to all of us. And it's, it's inconsistencies like this that drove me to look for more credible answers. Hmm. So... so <clears throat> Then what happened? Like, the, like, well, you mentioned already. Kind of like what happened is they, they, they started to prosper from all this copper and selling the bronze and making weapons, and then tried to conquer the world, and and ultimately just ended themselves. They um, ended themselves. But once yeah. that happened, I mean, obviously there were survivors. I know you have a book called Survivors of Atlantis. What happened to them? Well, we mentioned earlier myth. Well, some people regard myth as a lie or just a story. That's not true. Myth is something that a, a pre-modern people who do not have writing uses to preserve those important truths, to pass them down from one generation to another in story form. That's why myths endure. Why do you think our, our myths are still around after thousands of years? Because... They have a kernel of truth at their very center. And one of the comparative myths that I find really interesting, and to answer your question as best I can, is a, a myth that the ancient Egyptians had. This was a myth that was recounted, actually written down for the first time, by a, uh, an Egyptian scholar by the name of Manetho, about 200 B.C. This is about 200 years after, uh, about 160 years after Plato wrote his Atlantis story. And in his uh, book, Manetho describes the earliest known, one of the very earliest known Egyptian myths. And it's a foundation myth, how Egypt got started. This story, by the way, is also told not only in Manetho, but in a 
something which is called the Book of the Dead. You can still read it in there. Mm. That's available. And it, what the story tells is the very beginning of Egypt. How did it start? Well, it started, he says, Menetho says, on an island, a large, beautiful island, beyond the uh, 12th bowl. What that means is the 12th bowl refers to Egyptian map-making, at least in his time. And they didn't have latitude and longitude in the same way we do, but not that different in some regards. They used semicircles to establish distances on a map, and these semicircles would resemble a bowl. And the 12th bowl corresponded to the Straits of Gibraltar, the end of the Mediterranean Sea, and the beginning of the Atlantic Ocean where Spain meets North Africa. And when Manetho says that this island existed beyond the 12th bowl, he is saying it's an Atlantic Atlantic island. Well, anyway, the story goes that the island was called Sekret Aru. Sekret Aru means field of reeds. Why would you call an island a field of reeds? Manetho says that Sekret Aru, the Field of Reeds, was a place of great wisdom. And by calling it the Field of Reeds, it means that it was a place of great literacy and great wisdom because the reed in Egypt was used as an ink pen. In other words, if you wanted an ink pen, you'd go down to the Nile shore and you see all these stiff, sharp reeds going there and you cut one off or break one off you file the end of it, you dip it into ink, and that's that's how they had their pens. It worked quite well. So if you're talking about a place that's a field of reeds, that's a place of great literacy, high learning. So on Sekret Aru, um, according to Manetho, and also mentioned in the Book of the Dead, uh, there was a man whose name was Thout, T-H-A-U-T. The Greeks called him Thoth. And Thout was a high priest living at a time when the people on the Isle of, the, the Isle of Reeds or Sekret Aru were undergoing a geological change and the island was sinking. The island was in a process of being consumed by the sea. And so Thout and his followers got into what is, they refer to, what Manetho refers to as a solar boat. And he had with him some of the most brilliant leaders in Sekret Aru. They escaped. These were uh, the leaders of uh, in astronomy and all forms of high culture, architecture, medicine, uh, all that sort of thing. And he escaped, and the island sank into the sea with its inhabitants. Right away, it sounds like Atlantis. <laughs> and they arrived at the Nile Delta. And when they did... Uh, they did not take over the inhabitants. The inhabitants at that time, Manetho said, were primitive people. Uh, they were just uh, fishing, uh, fishermen and farmers. That's as far as they went. But when Thout arrived with the survivors from Sekret Aru, they laid the foundation for a dynastic civilization. They were pyramid builders, great builders of temples, uh, great physicians, uh, they expanded the agriculture and created the, the basis 
for the first dynasty, first pharaoh's dynasty. Now, that's an interesting story in itself, but on the other side of the world, we're talking about Mexico now. Mm-hmm. In Mexico, when the Aztec civilization was conquered by the Spaniards in the 15th century A.D., now this is many thousands of years later, and certainly the Spaniards, especially at that time, had no conception of Manetho or the story of Sacra and Aru, nothing like that at all, the Spanish friars. The Spanish friars at that time, after the Aztecs had been conquered, um, put themselves to the task of learning the, the Aztec religion and the Aztec history in depth. And the reason why the Spanish friars did that is because that would assist them in their Christian conversion of the Aztecs and the native peoples of Mexico because they wanted to disprove and debunk all of these people's history and uh, their religious ideas, spiritual ideas. So the Spanish friars were very dutiful in copying everything down they possibly could from the original sources of the Aztecs. And the Aztecs told the Spanish friars, the Spanish friars asked them, well, let's start at the beginning. How did this whole civilization of yours begin? And the story that the Aztecs told the Spanish friars was this. Long ago, from across the sea, came a man known as the Feathered Serpent. We called him Quetzalcoatl. The Maya called him Kukulkan. Mm-hmm. Other peoples called him Gukumans, but it all means the same thing, the Feathered Serpent. The reason why he was called the Feathered Serpent is not because he was a snake, but because of an insignia he, that he wore. That name refers to an insignia, the Feathered Serpent. Well, here's the first comparison with Egypt. Because what do you see over the doorways of all of the temples in Egypt? You see a solar disk surrounded by a serpent with feathers with wings. This is the same insignia that the Egyptian high priests wore when they administered to people in the Nile Valley. Quetzalcoatl arrived from an island in the Sunrise Sea, the Aztecs said. And Quetzalcoatl arrived with his family and his followers of very brilliant people. And they arrived here and they uh, intermarried and interworked with the native people here, and that is the basis for Mesoamerican civilization, for Aztec civilization. <laughs> Everything goes back to Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent. <clears throat> so then the, the priest, the, the Spanish friar, said, what was the name of the island that the feathered serpent came from? And the Aztecs said the name of the island was Atslan, A-Z-T-L-A-N, Atslan. Well, what does Atslan mean? The name Atslan means field of reeds. <laughs> Same exact description that the Egyptians gave on the other side of the world thousands of years before that time. And the reed was used, the same thing, in the Valley of Mexico as it was used in the Valley of the Nile. Reeds grow there, you can break them off, and you can just write them as, a, as an ink pen. So I think that that is known as comparative myth. 
these are legitimate sources. It's, this has not been twisted in any way. And I relate all the sources in my books where you can find these things, you dig these things out. There are many other myths that uh, work just as well as that. But that one, I think, is one of the most illustrative of what you're saying. What happened? When the Atlanteans lost their society, even before Atlantis was destroyed by a natural catastrophe and a combination of military reverses, they were already uh, creating an empire in different parts of the world by bringing this high civilization, this high culture to various places. And this contributed to uh, other civilizations like the Aztec civilization, actually before the Aztecs. The Aztecs were a more modern uh, phenomena. The Aztecs really began maybe in the 14th century AD, but they're a part of what we call Mesoamerican civilization, which goes way back to the Maya, and long before the Maya, to the Olmecs, and all these other mm -hmm. uh, variations of the same high civilization that were sparked by the Atlanteans when they established their colonies here. They established colonies in Colombia, in Mexico, certainly in North America, and um, Europe and, and Africa. They were the first, not only were they the first human civilization, they were also the first global civilization. Not entirely global, not around the world, but certainly an empire in the sense that uh, of the same type that was established by the British in more modern times. The story of Atlantis uh, is a complex one. There's a lot going on because it's a very old story and, and it covers a great length of time. Atlantis flourished from 3800 B.C. all the way up to 1200 B.C. That's a long time. A lot can happen in all that time. 1200 B.C., that's when the curtain rang down on them. Although their story wasn't really totally finished then either because their survivors went to other, other lands and sparked similar civilizations. It's interesting, isn't it, that the pyramids of Egypt are... Uh, have counterparts in in Mexico. The yeah. Valley of the Nile has ninety some pyramids. The Valley of Mexico has some ninety pyramids. Uh, both have step pyramids. Both pier both sets of pyramids are uh, aligned with specific astronomical phenomena. In many cases, identical astronomical phenomena. For example, the solstices are charted by the Egyptian pyramids and the Mexican pyramids. Also, many of the pyramids in uh, Mexico are dedicated to the feathered serpent, just the same way that the pyramids in uh, the Great Pyramid, especially in Egypt, is associated with Thout, right. which is the uh, it's like, uh, counterpart. Ch was it Chetzalitza? So I think that what we're seeing is you're not seeing uh, the exact same pyramids right. and their same meetings in Egypt and in Mexico because when the Atlanteans came to Egypt they created a hybrid civilization between the Atlanteans and the native peoples, specific native peoples. The native peoples of Egypt were different than the native peoples of Mexico, obviously, mm -hmm. and so by interacting and intermarrying with the peoples of Mexico you created a similar, although different culture. I think it's, it's really quite clear, quite obvious that this is what's going on, especially when you uh, listen to mainstream, conservative, uh, conventional explanations, uh, which 
do not make sense and, and are really quite, uh, I, th- I think, indefensible. But uh, the story of Atlantis is important because uh, it is a big chunk of our history, and it reflects uh, very much on, on what's going on in our society today. After after that, you know, why and how did they sort of fall into obscurity? They fell into obscurity because of a dark age that happened. We have to understand that uh, the destruction of Atlantis in 1200 B.C. corresponds to the onset of a dark age of immense intensity. And that's a, that was a terrible unspeakable tragedy because the age that it ended, the Dark Age, destroyed the Bronze Age. It was during the Bronze Age that civilization reached very high levels in in every respect, not just in Atlantis, but in many other places. Troy was a magnificent civilization, by the way, a, a kindred civilization of the Atlanteans. Egypt was at its absolute height. Uh, so we're talking about the late Bronze Age from about 1500 B.C. to 1200 B.C. as a period of true glory, true civilized glory, fabulous kingdoms. And Atlantis was uh, one of these. And it was possibly, certainly militarily and economically, the greatest. But the others were also very great. The Bronze Age ended almost overnight. There was no decline uh, in many of these other societies, like uh, Egypt and uh, Troy uh, didn't really have the same sort of uh, precursor decay, although there were some signs of that going on. Instead, there was a natural catastrophe of global proportions that took place in about 1198 B.C. This also is not uh, speculation. This isn't anything that people are making up. Um, There was a conference that was held in the 1990s, in the late 1990s, uh, at Fitzwilliam College in England. And this symposium uh, attracted the world's leading uh, climatologists, geophysicists, uh, geologists, oceanographers, uh, and colleagues uh, from many related disciplines. And this this conference that was held, this symposium, wanted to answer the question, or at least pose the question, why did the Bronze Age end so abruptly, and why was it followed for 500 years by darkness? Uh, in which civilization just went into into the pits, and the general consensus uh, from these scientists, which also included dendrochronologists, these are people that are able to have pretty good handle on time, thanks to the effect of uh, tree growth. If the response, the consensus, the general consensus, was that there was a close encounter that Earth experienced with a major comet, and that this comet, its tail, was very filthy. It was composed of literally thousands of uh, debris elements. And when we came close to this um, 
comet, when it made a close pass to us, it created a barrage on Earth, a a meteoric barrage, uh, which devastated uh, much of the Northern Hemisphere. Um, One of the things that it did was it completely incinerated uh, the, the Black Forest in Germany. Dendrochronologists had known this for a long time. The Black Forest, of course, is the largest forest in all of Europe, one of the largest forests in the world. It was even larger 3,200 years ago until it was absolutely incinerated. At the same moment in time, uh, this, this is hard to grasp, uh, the British Isles were virtually depopulated. They were depopulated of, of all living things. Mm. Human population went through a bottleneck. Uh, all animals and so forth. Uh, the the amount of devastation that was uh, recorded in ge- in the geological record and in the historical record, especially the Chinese at that time, and and the Egyptians to some extent, uh, makes it clear that this was one of the worst, um, one of the most devastating astronomical events that humanity had ever in in its whole history ever faced and it was this event which took place around 1200 bc that shattered human society all around the northern hemisphere and it was only through the course of many hundreds of years almost 500 years that the society crawled back uh, and created the classical age that, that we know of with Greece and Rome and Phoenicia and so forth. And it is this dark age that consigned Atlantis and Troy and so many other societies to legend because all the records were lost. Everything, the societies themselves in many cases were completely gone, eradicated. There was nothing at all left of Troy, not even scorch marks. Nothing left of Atlantis because it had sunk under the sea. And it was this uh, event that um, pushed civilization to the, the brink of extinction. And in that, in that uh, brink, uh, the information was lost. The only thing that was left were uh, oral memories, folk traditions, which were enshrined just as, as myths. And part of that was uh, Homer's uh, Iliad and the Odyssey. They were regarded just as as, um, as songs, as uh, as artworks, certainly not as history. And it wasn't until archaeology got going uh, many, many centuries later found out that it was true after all. Hmm. So that's how that's how that happened. And there have been other dark ages. Our our history as a species has been punctuated by dark ages and that was that was among the worst the same thing happened more recently when rome fell when rome fell of course everybody knows about that dark age the medieval yeah. period and so much was lost that uh, society again uh, almost faded out to nothing but then, luckily, the Renaissance came, and it's called. Why is it called the Renaissance? It's called the Renaissance because it got started only after a, a few men at first began to finally look into the ancient world. 
And some of the things that were found sparked the beginning of a new lease on, on life for civilization. The church had lost its political grip to some extent, and so some people were able, some scientists and scholars were able to go back into the look into the ancient world, what left of it was left of it, and created things anew. The Renaissance was from about 1400 A.D. to all the way to our time. The last 600 or 700 years has really been nothing more, and it's this process is still going on today, nothing more than a reconstruction of the greatness of the ancient world, which was lost in that dark age. The same thing happened after uh, Atlantis fell. Atlantis was just one of the victims, along with Troy and others. One of the victims, the Shang dynasty in China, that got vanished. That was a high, very high civilization. Um, you saw the same thing all around uh, the Northern Hemisphere. And the only thing that remained of them afterwards, like I said, were uh, memories, uh, folk traditions. Right. Wow. So, so you know, <clears throat> I guess we, it's almost like they hit, like uh, nature almost hit the reset button <laughs> on it. That's what, that's it. That was it. It was like a major reset. Certainly yeah. things were, were wiped out. So where do you think Atlantis is or was, and do you think we can find it? Well, those are wonderful questions because uh, I believe that about everything about Atlantis that can be written has been written. I don't write any more. I've written more books and published more books about Atlantis than anybody else. And I have no intention of writing anything more about it because I've said everything I could possibly say. And there are many other really great books out there on this, on Atlantis, many hundreds of them, and they all have great things to say. But anything from this point on, we need to find it. You can argue all you want. You can put the best evidence you want forward, but it's just like trying to make a case in court without the body. Without the, without the uh, human remains, you don't have a case. Now, where is it, and will it ever be found? Or has it already been found? I believe that it already has been found. It was found uh, in 1970 by accident. It's a long story. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. But 1970 was regarded as, if not the height of the Cold War, then a very bad time of the Cold War. And um, the Soviets were investigating an area of the Atlantic Ocean beyond the Straits of Gibraltar. They were investigating in the guise of a scientific expedition uh, they were investigating uh, an island, one of the sunken islands that was overwhelmed by the sea when the last ice age finally rose all that water, that 459 feet of sea level, and sank this island along with a number of others. And the Soviets were out there because they were convinced, wrongly, that the Americans were making some kind of a submarine base. <laughs> no. Paranoia reigned supreme at this time <laughs> in both countries. And uh, just because, it is kind of funny, because uh, there was a, a kind of an obscure scientific journal in Boston in which uh, somebody had said something like uh, that, that this one island out in the Atlantic Ocean might make a, a submarine base someday. Well, the Soviets read that, and they were convinced <laughs> the Americans had already made the thing there. 
But they couldn't go out there. It was international waters. They couldn't go out there with a military vessel and poke around because that'd stir up all kinds of bad things. So what they did is that they uh, went out with it, one of their uh, scientific research vessels. They went out to this island. But there were no scientists, or very few scientists, I should say. There were some scientists aboard, but there was mostly military men on board. And they went out to look at this island, convinced that they would find the American submarine base. Ha-ha! and then go to the United Nations and make a big stink about it. So they go to this island, and they they use their search equipment, which mostly consisted of, uh, for its time, not too bad, underwater uh, cameras, which they lowered by cables, TV cameras. And uh, they did not find any submarines or any submarine bases of any kind, but they found a staircase large uh, set of flight of steps uh, at about 300 feet below the surface. Now, when we consider that the Ice Age left water 459 feet lower, 300 feet uh, fits within those parameters. They also found columns overturned. They found, most important of all, um, domiciles. They found the foundations of buildings, unmistakable buildings. So the Russians uh, documented all that, and they said nothing about it at all. Nothing. Um, the Americans were already already knew <laughs> that the Russians were out there, and that they knew that they were hiding, playing in this guise of a scientific vessel. The Americans that went out said, what are the Russians doing out there? What are they doing in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? We don't have anything there. What are they all doing? So the Americans went out there, and they found the same thing. They found the steps. Now, the American story uh, was never published, uh, never never got out in anything at all, and is, is not in any records whatsoever. How do I know about it? Because I was able to talk to one of the officers on board, an American submarine, who went there chasing after the Russians and what they saw and what happened. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't trying to impress me, believe me. He was he was very nervous even discussing it because he was not allowed to disclose uh, what they had seen. He's under orders from that. Um why the why the uh, Americans would make such a secret about it? I don't know. It has something to do with military mentality, which nobody can figure out, of course. <laughs> and um, but the the Soviets eventually did blow it when they found out that the Americans were poking around down there, mm-hmm. because the Americans did say, "Oh, the Russians are trying to establish an underwater base in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean." What could that mean? The Amer- and the Russians came back, "No, we're not." We were there because we're just a scientific vessel. Well, it's a lie, of course. And we found what looks like Atlantis down there. So, so the Americans then came back and said, yeah, sure, you're, you're just lying about that. Everybody lies constantly. But <laughs> even when they tell the truth, they're lying. Oh, yeah. So that came out in the 1970s, the mid-1970s that the Russians had found this, and they even released some photographs. Photographs weren't too bad. They weren't spectacular. Russians found other things, too. They found some interesting things. I haven't got time to go into all that. 
So the Russians found this. Well, well what's happened since then? Well, they, the Russians went, had several expeditions out there. And uh, they had some top people. I talked to, or not talked to, but I've been in contact with um, the last surviving scientist, Russian scientist, who was out there. And uh, he's way up there in years now. But uh, he went, on, not on the first expedition, but he went on uh, an expedition afterwards. And the reason they brought him along was because they were wondering, are we looking at real r remains or are these natural features that look like remains? And uh, he, went, before he went out, that's what he was told that he had to do. And he says, yeah, I can tell you if, if they're real or not, for sure. So they brought him out there, and he was prepared to believe that they were just natural formations. And he saw the, the television footage and thought, well, that looks interesting. He says, I want to go on a submarine. I want you to bring, bring me a midget submarine. I want to go down and look at it. It's not that deep, 300 feet down. Even in those days, that wasn't, that wasn't too deep. So he brought along a midget submarine. He got in it, and he went down, and he saw it. And uh, he spent some time down there, and they found some others, other related materials, apparently. And they went back up and they asked him, I said, well, what do you think? Is it, uh, is it real or is it just natural? He says, it's undoubtedly real. So it's artifact, it's man-made. There's no question about it. It's too rectilinear, too uniform. Uh, stones are cut. He says, no, it's, it's definitely. What he was looking at was a series of uh, small foundations. These were like for domiciles, perhaps, or storage areas, who knows, 300 feet below the surface of the ocean. Wow. And um, so I, I, I was in contact with him um, till fairly recently, till about a year or so ago, a little more than a year ago, I guess. And he said, yeah, everything is, is real down there. Well, then what happened? How come we never heard anything more about it? And the Russians were, were saying, yeah, it, it's, it's down there, especially in the 1980s. Uh, they, in the 70s, they had a, a press release that was published in the New York Times, um, I've got that article. And then after that, not too much. But the Russians went back to for uh, numerous, not numerous, but for several expeditions, took more photographs. Um, they did take at least one artifact, um, which I think is vanished. I don't think it exists anymore. And then something happened in 1986 that explains what happened. 1986, Chernobyl happened. And when Chernobyl happened, it was the greatest embarrassment that the Soviet Union had ever experienced. It completely um, sort of discredited Soviet science. And so uh, the word was out that uh, there's no more scientific releases from the Soviet Union until this thing gets straightened out. And so um, the whole thing was put on hold. And four years later, or five years later, the Soviet Union collapsed. When the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a feeding frenzy of uh, uh, documentation shredding because there was had been so much corruption and so much, um, well, theft and um, even murders involved that uh, there was this wholesale shredding of information. And... Um, the expeditions, the Russian expeditions, they suffered because of that. Some of these documents still exist. I've seen one. I've seen several of them actually. 
but most of them were lost along with that. Soviet science was went through its own self-made dark age when they they were all trying to cover each other's butts mm-hmm. because uh, they had been doing so much illegal stuff, even in even the Soviet terms, illegal stuff. So that was the end of that. Um, there has since been found uh, formed rather in Russia today, modern Russia, the uh, Atlantis Society of Moscow. And uh, it's through them that I've been able to, uh, my colleagues there in Moscow, that I've been able to um, get in touch with this geologist and to learn this whole story about how that happened. Now, nobody has gone back since then um, because um, of all these other problems that are going on in the world right now. Um, there's a, when I first heard about this, I thought, God, I'd love to go out there and check it out, see if the Russians, if this really happened. Um, it seems like it really did. Uh, or were they mistaken? Could the geologists have been mistaken? These are just natural things. And um, so I figured, well, let's let's go there. Let's, let's see what we can do. And the, before I even contacted anybody about money or anything like that, I wanted to see if the technology existed. Because it's underwater archaeology is... Uh, at least ten times harder than regular archaeology. It's very, very, especially in the ocean. It's mm-hmm. extremely difficult, and and the cost is much higher. On land, you just walk on the land, you dig a hole, and there you are. Uh, that's not the case uh, in, in water, especially in, in dangerous water like the Atlantic Ocean. The North Atlantic is a very dangerous place. So um, I began looking at the technology available for uh, civilians, because military technology, of course, we don't have a, it's probably better, but we don't have access to that. Uh, and I, when I first began studying, as I, I mentioned, in the 1980s, I figured, yeah, let's go look for this thing. And the technology existed, and I had some experience with it. I went uh, and worked at, uh, I did some underwater archaeology at a lake in Wisconsin, for a number of years, and I got to learn side scan sonar and things like that. It was very costly and uh, clumsy. This is back in the ni- beginning of the 1980s, all the way through mm, beginning of this century. Underwater technology was kind of clunky, very expensive. Uh, just to go out there for a short space of time and to go to the Russian spot would have been in the millions of dollars. Uh, I don't have that kind of money. I don't have access to that. However, there's been a terrific uh, revolution in technology, uh, downsizing, and especially electronic technology has the computer technology has just, as everybody's aware, uh, has affected our whole society. And underwater archaeology has improved fantastically, and is continuing to improve within the last. 10 years up to the present moment. There are new things that are coming out all the time. And small, handy things. So instead of have, instead of spending a million or more dollars, easily a million dollars uh, 15 or 20 years ago when I first started, you can, you can do it for just a... Well, it sounds like a lot of money, but just for a few hundred thousand dollars now. Right. And the equipment is light. It's small. And what I'm talking about is mostly... Um, ROVs mm-hmm. uh, that are these are the, like um, the underwater drones submersibles, yeah. right? They're submersibles. You don't even have to. You don't need a submarine or anything. You don't need to get in the water mm-hmm. at all. 
and they have the, 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 the digital cameras are fabulous. Some of these ROVs, uh, underwater research vessels, remotely operated vessels is what it means, remotely operated vessels. They're just like little mini, mini submarines that you operate like drones, and they have fantastic cameras, and they have um, uh, trays that they can shovel stuff into, little shovels and claws and all that sort of thing. But the most important thing is that they they have uh, cameras on board, recording cameras. Well, actually, the, yeah, the cameras are, are there, and then you record it uh, digitally on board your, your boat. You're just warm, snug, and your bunk and a boat and this thing is 300 feet below you looking around for things and uh, metal detectors and all kinds of stuff like that and so these instrument instruments are the cost has gone way down and um so that's why i'm thinking that actually only now strangely enough i mean up to this time about 2020 2021 only now has the technology really developed enough well, we've got a good chance of checking it out. Before, the technology was mostly side-scan sonar, which is, has always been really good, except that sometimes something that looks natural uh, would have been natural. You wouldn't have re- you'd have been looking at really kind of sound echoes of what you're looking yeah. at. Now you can look mm-hmm. at the real thing. Now you can look at the real thing. You still use side-scan sonar because it's improved a lot too. It can find great stuff, but you can now you can take terrific photographs and um, like I said it's all small equipment you can take it you can hold it all in your hands bring it on board a ship you need a professional operator to do it I would not want I wouldn't want to operate it because it, it takes really good uh, training and uh, some skill to operate these things so I wouldn't want to jeopardize it through my incompetence but um, getting hiring the um, the uh, operators to run this this equipment and leasing the equipment, you wouldn't have to have to buy it. Just you, this equipment can be leased, so that cuts the cost way down. The biggest expense is getting a, a boat. You need a boat to go a good sized boat, like a yacht. Uh, specifically, what you really need to do an expedition like this is catamaran, and the catamarans are available because they're mm-hmm. very stable, really stable. So what we need is a catamaran. We need a crew, a captain go out to these coordinates where the Russians were, put our equipment in the water, and just try to find these things and document them. And that's all. That's all I want to do. I don't want to actually even remove anything from there, even though it is international waters. I wouldn't want to touch anything there at all. So are, but I, are what we, I'd like to do... Are, are we talking sort of just like off the coast of Spain? Uh, I can't say exactly where. I, I don't, because I don't want people to go rushing there because... Yeah. Uh, People could destroy it. It's very; uh, these places are very, very fragile, mm-hmm. and it's admittedly it's very hard to find. But I'm not going to give the exact coordinates or even in the general. All I'm saying is it's in the Atlantic Ocean. It's in the North Atlantic, mm-hmm. and um, it, it it fits the the um, story of Atlantis quite well. That doesn't mean it really is it, but it, it sure sounds intriguing. So what That's I would nice. like to do is just to give it a chance and see if it is real or not. And um, what I would do is I'd get this catamaran, get a crew to run it, a captain. I'd have to uh, hire also uh, at least one operator, maybe two operators of this ROV and so forth. And I do have the exact coordinates of where the Russians were, uh, which are not published anywhere. Awesome. I was able to get those. So I know exactly where they, I know exactly the spot where they went down. 
where they were uh, this one Russian geologist where he saw the uh, foundations. So I'd go down there. I'd send the, I, I mean, I'd send the uh, ROVs down there, hopefully find these uh, this site and others like it, photograph them, get their exact coordinates down, GPS them down to the, to the inch if possible, and uh, don't touch anything. Touch not a thing. Don't remove anything. Uh, bring the photographs and all the information back, and then uh, share them with some university and say, "There, take it off now. Just, just go. Tell us what it's what's down there." And that would be fantastic. So that's all I'd like to do. All an operation like that, I figure, cost about uh, under half a million dollars. So it's about three hundred thousand. It's not that much money, man. I think that that's the price of a house. It's incredibly cheap, by the way. It's incre- I mean, it, it's too expensive for you or me, you know, but. Um, so that's that's really how what it costs today. Five hundred. I don't think it would be five hundred thousand. I don't. Mm. I don't see that. I don't think so. It, the last cost estimate I had on it, which was about two and a half years ago, uh, bare minimum would be a, about one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, which is nothing. No, it's nothing, because all we're doing really is to, we're just going to this spot, uh, putting the equipment in the water. And if we, we don't find anything, well, that's it. You know, we didn't find it. But we'll stay there long enough to uh, exhaust uh, possibilities, reasonable possibilities, and um, see what happens. So, I mean, that would be terrific. At this point, I don't say I believe anything because mm-hmm. that's that's a pretty strong thing. But uh, I think it's certainly worthwhile to go check because nobody's been down there since the 1980s. The last expedition was about 1985 or four, and um, those, of course, involved major scientific ships. You know, you had to have, uh, you know, scientific uh, uh, vessels. Now you don't need that at all because everything's been so miniaturized, downsized, and yet the quality of everything is just taken off terrifically. So that's that's what I hope to do someday. Um, maybe it won't happen, especially these are very uncertain times. People are, uh, I, they're not sure of what's really happening. But I think the discovery of something like that would be uh, very, actually quite timely. Because let's say it turns out, yeah, this is really it. The, or the, uh, the authorities say, this is good, this fits Plato's thing. This has got to be what he's talking about. Then you draw parallels with uh, our own society. Well, how do these people, how do these people, the Atlanteans, so long ago, rise to such heights of cultural splendor, economic power, technological greatness. How could they lose all that? What happened? Yeah, I mean, that that fine could prevent us from making the same mistake again, maybe. Yeah. But, I mean, that's that's all that I really have in in mind uh, because I'm not an archaeologist. I have no right whatsoever to tamper with anything. But I have every right to go down there and look at it and and to find it, you know. Well, actually, the Russians found it. I just want to go back and verify it because it would be great if the Russians someday uh, go back there. But there's no indication that anybody's interested in anything like that at all. Nothing. And um, the Russian uh, Atlanta Society in Moscow, they're they're always urging uh, their own scientists, oceanographers, and everything to go, but just. Apparently, no interest in that for one reason or another. Hmm. But that would be the thing to do. It's in international waters, so it, belong, it doesn't belong to anybody, except it belongs to everybody, I suppose. 
and um, that would be the thing to do. It shouldn't be that dif- be- shouldn't be that difficult to raise that kind of money. Do you know Michael Cremo? Yes, I know Michael Cremo. Yes, I do. Yeah, I don't mm. think he has an extra hundred thousand dollars to spare. <laughs> yeah. But uh, now he uh, his interest uh, is is really uh, not so much on this. You know, he is he's yeah. done just fabulously uh, important work, uh, but kind of in a different field. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't I don't know what he's doing these days. I have not uh, heard about it. Much recently, uh, but he's, he's been doing mostly. Uh, when I, last time I talked to him, he was talking about exo archaeology, like oh. like looking for for archaeological things, just, not just here, things that here on Earth that were probably brought here from space, and things uh-huh. in space, you know that that you know were made by other civilizations. So yeah. he, he's really yeah. kind of, you know, he's taking that leap. Uh-huh. <laughs> No, he's a he's a brilliant creature, he and is. Uh, I, I, a lot of respect for his work. He's done wonderful, wonderful things. But um, what I'm asking though is, is nothing is uh, complex or as difficult. But uh, who knows? Maybe the price might even get uh, for these things get even lower. I don't know, or they could go up. I hope not. But uh, at least at this point, I mean, I was really surprised when I started. As I say, it was always a multi-million dollar, more than a million dollar enterprise, and the results would have not even been that good. But now, wow. You've got great stuff. And I've been in contact with a number of these uh, manufacturers of these instruments. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're letting me know what kind of material they've got, what they can do. And I ask them specifically, can these things operate in current and so forth? And I have to find out when's the best time to go. I figured that out. We've got about a about a week, week and a half opportunity where things are really good in the Atlantic, mostly. <laughs> the Atlantic is unpredictable, but <laughs> if you, uh, most of the time, you know, the Atlantic is a pretty rough place, but there's a period of time where uh, it seems to calm down generally, not always, and that's the time we'd go. And we'd only have to stay out there a week, a week and a half, that's all. But that should be enough. If we can't find anything after about a week, then uh, either there's nothing there or the equipment still isn't good enough. I don't know. It seems as though the technology is appropriate now, just now. Um, But we'll only have one shot at it, I think. I can't see us getting another opportunity. Hmm. And the difficulty in raising money is for this uh, is not only my ineptitude in uh, raising money, but whoever contributes to this, they won't get anything out of it financially. There's no, you know, I'm not going to sell any T-shirts or, you know, I found Atlantis or something like uh-huh. that. I don't do that. You know, I just, I can't bring myself to do that. But, but sometimes, like, say, for example, a shipping company, you know, uh-huh. you know, they uh-huh. have their, 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 if, you, if, if it's filmed, they made it into like a documentary and, you know, the, Name the companies on the side of the ship. Yeah, you know, boom. I mean, like for them, it's a commercial, and, and for you, is a archaeological enterprise. Well, actually, I want nothing out of it at all, <clears throat> personally. Well, you know, what I, I just mean. want it found. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I, I, it, that, that can't be. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I just can't work that way. But what I'd like to do is to take that information, as I say, we find and uh, hand it over to. Uh, some university that has an underwater archaeology department, 
and then then I'll let them go to that. Actually, I would take it to several mm-hmm. and let them see what they say. But I think that's a good suggestion that you have, really. You know, some company that could, I don't know, get uh, at least some of their investment back in bragging rights or publicity or something like that. But uh, beyond that, it's uh, it's pretty rough. Actually, I would prefer to own the uh, equipment. Um, which would raise the whole price of this more because let's say we go out there one time and we do find nothing. There may be other circumstances or environmental circumstances. Or let's say we go out there after having leased all this and the weather is too bad and then we have to take it back. So I would prefer to own the equipment so then I would be, rather than have to go through all that process again, as soon as things clear up, I just hop in a boat and go out there and, and check it out. Yeah. It may take more than just one expedition, is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. probably will. Yeah. It, it's it's a gamble, but still, $100,000, I could probably do it for, I would say at this point, it looks like about $150,000, so, mm. which is, I'd say, incredibly puny. But it's only for, <laughs> that's $150,000 a week, so for a week's <laughs> worth. There are work. people driving <laughs> cars that are more expensive than that. Yes, I know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, like I say, at this point, uh, they, they can't get anything out of it, <laughs> except uh, unless they're fanatic Atlantist uh, believers like myself, you know. <laughs> oh, you never know. You know, that's... Well, that's, that's the reason why I'm so uh, grateful to be on your show. Maybe there's somebody out there listening who figures, oh, that's cool. Let's try it, you know. 150 bucks doesn't mean much to me, so here you go. <laughs> exactly, you know. I mean, it's kind of also what we're doing with the whole Grand Canyon thing. Like, I got, you know, there's two people out mm-hmm. there now looking for that cave, you know. And sort of a well, preliminary... the trouble with the Grand Canyon is going to be the authorities there. They do not like people poking around down there. <laughs> they, they don't. And uh, they whether they're right or wrong, I don't know, but they say that's a very dangerous area to go into. They don't want people getting lost or hurt or killed or anything like that. So they, that's what they say. I, I did know a husband and wife team. This is years ago. This is like 15 years, 15 or more years ago. Husband and wife team. They went down there. They followed Kincaid's directions very closely, did a lot of research on their own, and uh, they found the place. They mm-hmm. found the place. And a large, they found the entrance to the cave. And uh, there's a large iron gate uh, with a chain across it, and uh, according to them. And they were trying to figure out how they're going to get through there when a helicopter appeared out of nowhere. A loudspeaker informed them that they had to leave immediately or they'd be arrested. <laughs> <laughs> so at least uh, in the Atlantic, I don't anticipate that. I mean, it's, you never know, but... Uh, <laughs> run into anything's possible but it is international waters so i don't see it yeah i mean what the heck are we doing out there you know we're just poking around with an rov that's it that's all we got mm-hmm. uh, but what i'd like to do is actually stay out there as long as possible because if they found stuff at 300 feet uh i don't want to go back there and just find what they found i mean that'd be fabulous of course but see what else there is there Check it out. See what other things you could find. Be great to find a statue or a plaque or something or an Atlantis uh, 
city limits sign or something. <laughs> you know, anything, but uh, well, they were um, supposedly like um, like a, you know you mentioned the whole tourist thing. Like they were they were bull god people, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So like if you found like like some something that that was like you know a bull god type of statue or carving or something. Oh, that'd like really that, cinch it. Yeah, that that, that would yeah. be good. Yeah, that'd cinch it. Absolutely. Awesome. So, well, and uh, we also need a magnetometer mm-hmm. uh, because of the gold that's there. If Plato is to be believed, there's a lot of gold in Atlantis. For example, uh, he says that uh, their sacred grove that they had set up for uh, Poseidon, the grove of Poseidon, was surrounded by a wall of solid gold, or at least gold-plated, and um, a lot of their sacred architecture, like the Temple of Poseidon, had all kinds of uh, metal work that they had down there. Now, gold does not deteriorate, so no. that gold is still there. Now, what's wonderful about that is, um, not that we would we'd take any of that, but if there is a, large con- a relatively large concentration of gold down there, that makes it much easier to find this place. Yeah. Because the magnetometer is going to go crazy. Uh-huh. When we go down, it's going to it's going to go nuts for all that, and that'll take us right to where we want to go. So that's why uh, a magnetometer is important, and this other equipment. But I was really shocked uh, when I found out that the prices of all these things are are by no means astronomical. You know, just yeah. nothing, and, and they're even cheaper if you lease them. So. So it sounds doable. I prefer not to lease it. But, but we'll see what happens, and you know, like I said, I've been at this. For a very long time, and I may never have the opportunity to do that. Um, but uh, when the time comes, I I hope that when the time comes that somebody will follow up on what the Russians did. When you learn that whole Russian story, it's uh, it's really fascinating. It's very credible. It doesn't sound like an apocryphal thing at all, especially because I talked to one of the people involved in it. For God's sakes, he's one of, he's considered one of Russia's greatest geologists. And um, so I thought, well, geez, this this thing really happened, I guess. Let's go down. And like I said, the thing that put the kibosh on it was uh, Chernobyl. That was that was really that wrecked it. And then, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah, that didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> well, it did help uh, everybody else, but <laughs> yeah, I'm glad it happened. But sorry, we lost all that valuable information. That's, kind of rough <laughs> yeah 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 well i think uh you know i'll do everything i possibly can to help raise awareness and get people possibly in touch with you to help raise the funds to do this i, I definitely feel it's possible it really is yeah well i'm so grateful that i can't tell you how how grateful i am and appreciative i am that you want to do that and it might be just what we need. I mean, like you said, we're not asking for some astronomical amount of money or or outrageous fees or anything like that, you know. But I factored in everything down to the penny as much as I could, like uh, transportation and for um, the operators, and you know, they they have to be paid a fee. Most obviously, you know, they got to be paid for their work and accommodations and transportation on food and all that stuff and it still comes out to about 150 grand so it's, works it's, it works out pretty good it's doable yeah Definitely. it's doable yeah 
is. Yeah. Absolutely. And what's most wonderful about it is that the technology seems to have just arrived, really, just arrived. 20 years ago, it wouldn't have really been possible. But it, it, I mean, the Russians just kind of lucked out. What they had was they just had a cable <laughs> with a TV camera on the other end. That's all they had. Well, they had several of them. And they just lucked out. And uh, they freaked out because they're looking around. You know, at first they thought when they saw these steps, that, oh, we found the American base. This is it. You know, but then they're looking at it and says, no, this stuff looks way too different for that, you know. <laughs> yeah, American base with and, columns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was, a, I guess there was one column that was found falling over. And, um, but mostly the thing that freaked everybody out were those uh, foundations, those square foundations. I don't know, they found a whole series of them. To this day, I don't know how many they found, but quite a few. And it, so it's like a little, little part of a of a city down there, of cool. the city. Yeah, really yeah, cool. and it's just at the right level, three hundred feet. So there yeah. was a time I could probably when that three hundred foot level was right at sea level. I could probably right dive at, that. Yeah, you could. Yeah. I mean, it would be a dangerous dive, but you, you can. There are divers that do yeah, that all the it. time. You could dive it. Yeah. I would never dive it. I, the deepest I've ever been was a little over a hundred feet. That's that's kind of dangerous. But yeah, you could you could uh, a professional scuba diver could definitely go down and do that. Awesome. Maybe that's what'll happen. I don't know. I just want to go down with a good uh, ROV. I want to get some good footage, and then I want to be able to have a, a, a GPS on it, nail its location down exactly. And that's all I that's all I'm after. And then with, with that information, then. Then take off to some uh, oceanographic institute or university and say, "Hey, well, now it's your turn. Check <laughs> this out." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, as long as they don't try to bury it, that's always one of my concerns about turning things over. It is. It's a legitimate concern because, and that's why I'm not going to just one or two uh, universities or oceanographic institutes or even in the same country. I'm gonna spread it around. Yeah. I shouldn't say this because they'll probably kill me for this now. You know, <laughs> probably be assassinated. <laughs> people, have, people have died for less. You know, I know. That's, that's that's sort of the nature of this business. <laughs> that's the nature of this business, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I did. I have to take a risk though, and and uh, share it with you and your audience. Otherwise, uh, nothing would ever happen. Nothing ever get done. Yeah. So now that's the story, pretty much as, as best as I understand it. Before we wrap, and like it, I say, all this is is speculation. Mm -hmm. Everything. I mean, even though it's well grounded and uh, there's a lot of good source material for all this, until you actually have the physical evidence, there's no way you can say, "Oh, I believe in this." Yeah. Right. First, you you gotta have that physical evidence, and we're at the point now where we can get that evidence, which is mm -hmm. terrific. So, so before we wrap this up, where can people find you? Or what's the best way to get in touch with you if somebody is interested in assisting with this endeavor? Okay, I can give you my email. I put my email up. It's just uh, frankjoseph44 at gmail.com. It's easy. Frankjoseph44 at gmail. That's it. Frank Joseph four four at gmail dot com. Um, let's see. Well, there's also if they want to write 
to me uh, through the post office if that's necessary. I don't. Or is the email enough? Or what do you think? Email's enough. I don't, I don't even know okay. if people who send letters anymore. No, I guess not. No. <laughs> there is a telephone number that they can call uh, and leave a message for me. This is the the phone number I'm going to give you is for uh, the magazine that I work for, Ancient American. Mm -hmm. It's a toll free number. And it's uh, 877-494-0044. And so they can call and uh, just leave a message if they want. And uh, the publisher there will forward that to me. Cool. So I'll put both of those in the notes of this episode. So if people are listening and want to get that information, they can just go into the notes and get it. Well, if thanks to you, uh, this uh, materializes, uh, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> well, it's exciting. <laughs> it is. Just, it it can be exciting. It's exciting and important. And like I said, it, it's just wonderful to think that the technology appears to be finally there. We don't have the clunky stuff that we had even 15 years ago. Everything you need to find this thing, you can put in a suitcase. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Great. Fantastic. Well, thank you for being on today. And um, just hang on for one moment, and I'm just going to play the outro. <laughs> 